0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. In order to understand what happened on the day of Pentecost, we first of all need to understand about the ministry of Christ. Because there can be no Pentecost without Christ's ministry. Now, last year I had a seminar at GYC where I showed two things. Number one, in the Old Testament you have this pattern where you have a sacrifice and then immediately after the sacrifice God shows his approval or his acceptance of the sacrifice by raining fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And the second symbolism that I presented last year is that in the rock episodes of the Old Testament, primarily the first one, which is in Exodus chapter 17, when Moses strikes the rock, God shows his approval of the striking of the rock by having the rock shed water. Actually, these two symbols are teaching the same lesson. And that is... The sacrifice and the fire that is sent to consume the sacrifice and the water that comes forth from the rock which was stricken is teaching us that the sacrifice of Christ, which is the meaning of the striking of the rock with the rod, the sacrifice of Christ was accepted by the Father. And God showed his acceptance by the fire that was seen on the day of Pentecost, the tongues of fire. It was an earthly announcement, really, that Jesus had presented himself before his Father and his Father had accepted his sacrifice. And also, water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. The way in which God showed that he accepted the striking of the rock or the striking of Jesus by the judgment of God was by pouring out the water, so to speak, or the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So the fire and the water actually represent the same thing. They are the evidence that God accepted the earthly work of Christ. And so it is impossible for us to separate uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost with what occurred during the ministry of Christ. So in our first session together, we're going to discuss the earthly ministry of Jesus. And the title of it is Mission Accomplished. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because GYC is a place where the Bible speaks, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. We're going to use the Bible profusely in our seminar, so we're going to need to bring our Bible, whether it be a hard copy or whether it be electronic, we need to have our Bibles. John 1, 1 through 3, we could probably repeat from memory, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And now comes the verse that I want to underline. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. So who was the creator of everything? Jesus was the creator of everything. And therefore who is responsible for our existence? Jesus is responsible for our existence. Now, he's not responsible for our sin, but he is responsible over the fact that we exist. And this is a very important detail. As we study along, we're going to see that this is extremely important. Now, when Jesus created Adam and Eve, originally at the beginning, God had a special plan for Adam. Go with me to Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 8, actually we'll read all the way through verse 8. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8. Two points that I want us to notice about this passage. Remember that Jesus created Adam and Jesus was responsible for Adam's existence. So it says here, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained... Then he asked the question, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have, now comes the first concept, you have crowned him. Now, who, who, is, who wears crowns? Kings wear crowns. So what was Adam's position? He was created to be king. That was his office or his position. So it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, every king has a territory over which he rules, right? A realm over which that king rules. Now, what was Adam's realm of dominion? Notice verse 6. You have made him to have dominion. See, there's the idea once again of ruling or governing. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is an idiomatic expression that means you have made him ruler things. And then it explains what those things are. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the sea. Now when the Bible uses the expression, beasts of the field, birds of the air, and fish of the sea, it means everything. Heavens, earth, and waters. In other words, Adam was placed to be ruler of everything relating to planet earth. His position was king And his realm of dominion was the earth and everything on the earth. But for Adam to keep his position as king and to keep the territory that God originally gave him, the Bible says that Adam would have had to render God perfect obedience because the law of God requires absolute sinless perfection. The law will not allow you to deviate even in the minutest detail because if you do, the law will condemn. And so in order for Adam to keep his position as king and to keep the territory which God gave him, Adam had to render the law sinless perfection. Now if he did not offer the law what the law requires, which is sinless perfection... The result would be that the law would say, You have to die. Now, when Adam sinned, we have a double whammy. First of all, Adam could no longer offer the law the perfection that the law required. And because Adam could not offer the law the perfection that the law required, the law says, If you don't offer me perfection, you must what? You must die. And so Adam had a double problem. Number one, he did not have the life that the law required, and therefore the law required his death. He did not have the life, and therefore he had to pay with death. Now the Bible tells us, of course, that Adam sinned. And the position of Adam and the territory that had belonged to Adam now was taken over by his conqueror. Go with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Remember, we're just preparing. We're preparing ourselves to study the significance of what happened at the Feast of Pentecost and what the message was at the Feast of Pentecost. Luke 4, verses 5 through 7. Jesus goes to a very high mountain. And I want you to notice what happens there. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms. That's the territory, right? Right? All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And now notice verse 6. And the devil said to him, all this what? Do you see the two ideas there? Kingdom and authority. Rulership has to do with authority and the kingdom has to do with the realm. And so the devil is saying, uh, all the kingdoms of the world I will give you. And all this authority I will give you, and their glory. And now notice what the devil says. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now, the question is, who had delivered this into the hands of the devil? Adam did. You see, we become servants of the one that we choose to obey. You can read that in Romans 6 and verse 16. We are servants of him whom we choose to obey. Adam chose to disobey God and he chose to obey the devil. And so the devil says, Now, you know, I am the king and he is my servant. And the territory which, is, which was his is now mine because he relinquished the throne and he relinquished the territory. Now the question is, when an individual sold his inheritance or his territory and sold himself into slavery from being Lord, was there any way in which what had been lost could be recovered? The answer is yes. Go with me to Leviticus 25 and verse 25. Leviticus 25 verse 25. If somebody, for example, sold their possession or their land in Israel Could that land be recovered by the original owner? It could. What if an individual sold himself into slavery and became a servant instead of being lord? Is there a way that he could get back his freedom and be lord over his territory again? Absolutely, but there was a condition. Notice Leviticus 25 verse 25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some... Now that word some is not in the Hebrew... That's added by the translators. Actually, it says, and has sold of his possession. So that has to do with territory, right? With the patrimony that God gave him. And now notice what it says. And if his what? Redeeming relative. That word redeem in Hebrew means to buy back by paying a price. It's the Hebrew word goel, which is basically the same Uh, equivalent word in the New Testament that is redeemed which means that kind of like the pawn shop you know you put something in the pawn shop and then you can come and buy it back by paying a price. And so it says if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it then he may redeem what his brother sold. Now who was the redeemer supposed to be? A brother or a next of kin in other words a close relative From the same family. Now what if an individual sold not his patrimony or his uh, land over which he ruled. But sold himself into slavery. Could he recover his position as Lord? Yes he could. Notice verses 47 to 49 in Leviticus 25. It says now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich. And one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor. And sells himself. To the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be what? There's the same word again. He he may be redeemed again. Who could redeem him? Continues saying, one of his what? One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him and then hypothetically it says or if he is able he may redeem himself well how could he redeem himself if he was a slave so could an individual recover the lost possession and recover his lordship over his territory in some way absolutely and the way was very simple a next of kin could come and pay the redemption price to give back the territory and to restore the individual to dominion over that territory. But the human race faced a terrible problem. You see, Adam lost the territory and he lost his position. And unfortunately, everyone who was born from him lost their territory and lost their position. Because the Bible tells us that within the human race there is none righteous, no not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the human race was in a precarious condition because there was nobody within the human race, there was no next of kin who could pay the price To buy back the lost possession and to buy back the position because everyone was a slave. And so the question is, how could the human race be redeemed if there was no one within the human race to pay the price of redemption? This is the reason for the incarnation of Christ. Let me ask you, before Jesus came to this earth, before his incarnation, was Jesus our next of kin No, because he belonged to what? He belonged to a different family. He belonged to the family of the Godhead. Did he not? Yes, he was the creator. He created us. But the fact that he created us does not mean that he was a member of our family. He was a member of the Godhead. And we were human beings. Could Jesus redeem what had been lost unless he became our next of kin? No, the laws of redemption required that the Redeemer had to be a next of kin. And that's the reason why we're told in John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I like to imagine what it must have been like in heaven when Jesus gathered all of the angels together and he said to the angels, Folks, the moment has arrived. I'm leaving. And I'm going to join that family down there. I'm going to be placed in the womb of a woman. And I'm going to be born as a human being. But then Jesus says to the heavenly host, I'll be back in 33 years. And I will be victorious. So you folks better start preparing the party from now. For my reception. Now, it's interesting when you read scripture, for example, Revelation 22 and verse 16, it says that that Jesus is the root and offspring of David. Now, that's a strange verse. How many of you have ever known an individual who is his son's father and his son's son? I don't know anyone other than Jesus. Jesus is the root of David, and he's also the offspring of David. Now, how do we understand that? Well, he's the root of David because he created David as God. But he is the offspring of David because Jesus became human flesh. The same is true of Jesus and Abraham. Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. But we're told in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus was the seed of Abraham. He's Abraham's father and Abraham's son. Because Jesus belonged to the member of the Godhead and then he decided to become human flesh in order to redeem the lost possession and in order to restore Adam to his original position of rulership. Now, basically, Jesus had a twofold mission. See, Jesus felt responsible for the existence of Adam. And he said, I have to do something about Adam and his descendants. Now, uh, you know, if you really think about it, there are people who say, well, I didn't choose to be born into this world. And that's true. Now, if Jesus had simply let us be born into this world and had not provided a way of escape... We might say, Man, that's not very nice. You know, we're born into this world. We never chose to come into this world. And yeah, we sin and we're lost. But Jesus says, Hey, I'm going to do something. You didn't choose to be born into this world. But you can certainly choose how you're going to get out of it. So I'm giving you a way of escape. I am responsible for your existence. And I love you. And therefore, I'm going to give you a way of escape. If you choose not to, not to take That offer that I'm making, that's not exactly my fault because I gave you a chance to accept and to escape the precarious condition that you sold yourself into. Now, the mission of Jesus was twofold. There are many things that Jesus came to this earth to do, but he came to do primarily two things. Number one, Jesus came to live the life that we should live, he came to live in our place. And secondly, After he lived a perfect life, then Jesus came to take our load of sin upon himself and die the death that we should die. Jesus came to live in our place and Jesus came to die in our place because the law says, offer me a perfect life. We can't. The law says, if you don't offer me a perfect life, you've got to die. And we don't have a perfect life to offer and therefore we are on death row. So Jesus, because he created all of us, Can offer to take the place of all of us. Only he who created all could offer to take the place of all. Are you understanding me? And and every time I say this, somebody says, Well, you know, Jesus didn't make me. I was born from my mother. I say, Oh, good. And who was your mother born from? Well, she was born from her mother. And who was her mother born from? From her mother. If you go all the way back, where does the process end? With Adam and Eve. When Jesus created Adam and Eve, he created in them the entire human race. So he who created all could offer to come and live for all and he could offer to come and die for all. So Jesus came for two reasons. To live the perfect life that the law demands from us and to die the death that the law demands from us. To live and to die. This is taught in the sanctuary service. You know, sometimes we, we talk about this, the death of Christ and we say, you know, he's the perfect, he's the lamb that's sacrificed and we forget that there's something very important before the death of the lamb. You see, when we study the sanctuary, many times we, we begin the study of the sanctuary in the court at the altar of sacrifice. That's not the, the place to start our study of the sanctuary. We need to study the sanctuary beginning in the camp. Because the camp is where sinners live. Needy sinners. Before Jesus died on the cross, which is represented by the altar of sacrifice, Jesus had to live a perfect life in our midst. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You see, His sacrifice would have had no value unless, first of all, He had lived His perfect life. And so Jesus came and He camped out with us. In fact, John chapter 1 verse 14 could be translated, the word was made flesh and tabernacled in our midst. He pitched his tent in our camp. And he said, I am going to go over the same ground that human beings go over. But there's one difference. And that is that I'm going to render the law perfect obedience in man's place. And then, at the end of my life, I'm going to take all of his sins upon myself And I'm going to suffer the penalty that human beings should suffer. I'm going to live for them, and I'm going to die for them. Notice, for example, Exodus 12, verses 5 and 6. On this idea that Jesus had to live a perfect life first, and then he had to die for sin. Exodus 12, verses 5 and 6. Speaking about the Passover lamb, it says, Your lamb shall be what? Without blemish. That represents the perfect life of Christ a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Now notice, so first of all it says the lamb is without blemish and then it says then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall what? Shall kill it at twilight. Two aspects about the lamb. Number one, the lamb was to have no blemish. That's the perfect life of Christ. And secondly, the lamb was to be what? slain why because the lamb was bearing the sins of the people notice 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 once again we have the same idea coming through only this is in the New Testament here Peter explains knowing that you were not redeemed there's the word redeemed see uh, which means to buy back by paying a price knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with what? With the precious blood. There you have the death of Christ. With the precious blood of Christ, but what kind of lamb was he before he died? As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So what two things did Jesus have to come to do? He had to come and offer the law, the perfect life that the law requires. And secondly, he had to bear the sins of the world and suffer the death penalty that all human beings should suffer. Jesus lived in place of all and Jesus died in place of all. Do you think the devil knew what the mission of Jesus was? Do you think the devil knew knew who he was? Go with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Here Jesus is in a synagogue in Nazareth. And I want you to notice uh, what transpires. There's this man that's possessed by demons. The Jews didn't know who he was, but the devil did. It says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? And now notice what their concern is. Did you come to what? Oh, they know why he came. Did you come to destroy us? And then the evil spirit says, I know who you are. The Holy One of Israel. Did the devil know that Jesus had come to live a perfect life and that he had come to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin? The devil could read the sacrificial service. He could see that a lamb was chosen without any blemish in it. And then he could see the hands being placed on the head of the lamb and the sin being confessed on the head of the lamb and then the slaying of the lamb. The devil says, now I know what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to live a perfect life and then he's going to suffer death for sin. And so what was the devil's mission? If the mission of Jesus was to come and live a perfect life and to bear the sins of the world, to pay for sin, what do you suppose the the devil's mission was? The devil's mission was to keep Jesus from living his perfect life and to keep him from dying from offering his life as a sacrifice for sin. Are you understanding me? Now the devil used four methods to try and get Jesus to fail. In his mission of living a perfect life and his mission of paying the penalty for sin. The first method that the devil uses is is he says, I'm going to kill him before he offers his life as a sacrifice for sin. You see, If the devil took the life of Jesus, that would not count as a sacrifice for sin. Because the Bible says that the Messiah had to offer his life. It could not be taken from him. He had to offer his life. The devil says, I'm going to kill him before he is able to offer his life. Did the devil attempt to kill Christ several times during his ministry? Let's read about the first time. Revelation chapter 12 verses 3 and 4. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. It says here, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. So what is the devil saying? He said, I'm going to nip this in the bud. I'm going to finish this problem From the time that he's born. In other words, the first method of the devil is to try and kill Christ before he can offer his life. Did the devil try to kill Christ at other occasions during his ministry? Absolutely. You remember, and I'm going to only mention the verses, you remember in Matthew chapter 8 where there was this horrendous storm that uh, came when the disciples and Jesus were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it was a storm out of season. The fishermen were out, which would have never happened if it was storm season. It was a storm out of season, according to the spirit of prophecy. Who do you suppose was behind that storm? The devil. So I'm going to drown him. You remember, we have the story of when Jesus was speaking in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he said some pretty unpopular, politically incorrect things, like, you know, who did God favor in the days of, uh, of Naaman? It was a Syrian and not the Jews. He favored this, this woman who was a Gentile. And man, they got so furious at him. that Oh, the Lord favors the Jews. They don't, he doesn't favor all these undesirables of society. And so they started pushing him outside the city. And they were going to throw him over a cliff. And if you read Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that there were demons disguised as men in that crowd wanting to push Jesus over the precipice. Why do you suppose the devil wanted to do that? He wanted to kill Jesus. Were there several occasions during the ministry of Christ when stones were picked up to stone Christ? Absolutely! But the Bible says that Jesus walked through their midst And they were not able to see him. So the devil says, the way that I solve this problem of him living a perfect life and offering his life for sin is, I'm going to kill him. But the devil was not able to do it. In fact, several times in the Gospel of John primarily, you find statements such as this. They tried to lay hands on him, but they couldn't because his time had not yet come. In other words, there was a time God says, no, there's a time for him to offer his life as a ransom for many. And I'm not going to allow the devil to kill him before we reach that point. So the devil failed in his first method first method of trying to kill him. The second method that the devil used was trying, try to infect him with the virus of sin. The devil says, if I can't kill him, but I can infect him with sin then he's going to be my servant and he's not going to be able to recover anything. And so the devil constantly was after Christ to try and get Jesus to sin. Let me just read several texts from Scripture that point this out. The devil came to Jesus three times at the Mount of Temptation. And they were almost overmastering delusions that the devil offered Christ. And Jesus answered each time, It is written. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, I'll mention these quickly. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The devil could not infect him. Hebrews 7 verse 26 is another one of those verses that points to the perfect sinless life of Christ. It says there, For such a high priest was fitting for us, "...who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens." Notice the expressions. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. The devil could not infect him with the virus of sin. If he had, then Jesus would be in the same predicament as we are. In John 8 verse 46, Jesus threw out the question to those who were listening... A group of Jews, he says, Which of you convicts me of sin? And of course, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is supposed to be what? Nobody. Notice 1 John chapter and verse 5. First John chapter 3 and verse 5. These are all verses that speak about the perfect sinless life of Christ. It says there in 1 John 3, 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. One more. And there are many more in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2 verses 21 and 22. two. First Peter chapter 2. It says, for to, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Successful in the second method, trying to infect him with the virus of sin. No. He was unsuccessful in the first method, trying to kill Jesus before the time came for him to offer his life. Now, the devil used a third method. And that was to get Jesus to adopt a different plan of getting the kingdom back. In other words, distract him from going to the cross and recovering the throne and the dominion through a different method. Now let's notice several examples of that. Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is the third temptation of Christ. And it says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Thank you. I'll give you the old one. So in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, we're told that the devil took Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Was the devil trying to offer Jesus an easier road for getting the kingdom back? In fact, Ellen White amplifies, she says, The devil said to him, You don't have to, you know, you're going to have to go to Jerusalem. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to kill you. You're going to suffer. There's no need for that, the devil says. If you just fall down and worship me just for an instant, I'll give it all to you, free of charge. He's trying to distract him from the path of truly recovering that which had been lost. Did, Did the Jewish people at the time of Christ? constantly try to arrest Jesus to make him a temporal king. Let's notice one example, John 6, verse 15. After Jesus fed the 5,000, John chapter 6 and verse 15, and uh, Ellen White emphasizes that Judas was the leader in this because Judas wanted a temporal ruler. He wanted Jesus to take over the throne in Jerusalem. It says there in John 6, verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him what? To make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. You remember that towards the end of the life of Christ, actually six months approximately before Jesus died, he was in Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, "Uh, who are men saying that I am? Well, some say that you're... Jeremiah or your Elijah or one of the prophets and so Jesus says but who do you say that I am and Peter who appeared to be the spokesman for the disciples sometimes he put his tongue in fourth gear before putting his brain in first gear he says you are the Christ the son of the living God the word Christ means the Messiah you're the Messiah he didn't even know what he was saying but Jesus says hey well said Peter Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then the Bible says that Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things and die and resurrect the third day. What did Peter do? He comes to Jesus and says, Come on. The Messiah doesn't die, the Messiah sits on the throne. Don't be pessimistic. What's this about you going to Jerusalem and suffer and die? No, 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 no. What did Jesus say? By the way, he wasn't speaking only to Peter. He says, get thou what? Get thou behind me, Satan. What the devil was trying to do is offer Jesus a different way to take the throne instead of dying to recover the throne. And even when they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking to Christ. At that time, Jesus and the disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. In fact, the disciples were quite depressed before that because Jesus had stated, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And then they began their journey six days later they at the Mount of Transfiguration moving south. The disciples say, oh, no, he's moving towards Jerusalem. That's where they're going he said that they're going to mistreat him and he's going to die. So he takes them up to the Mount to encourage them, at least three of them. And uh, it says there that um, Jesus was glorified, like he'll look when he comes the second time. And... Uh, the disciples are really impressed because Moses and Elijah come to talk to Jesus and they were really talking about his, his departure or his exodus, the word exodus in Luke 9 verse 31 that he was going to do in Jerusalem. and He was going to be the Passover lamb like at the exodus. And, and so after this episode, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we stay here. Let us make three tabernacles and stay here. Let's not go to Jerusalem. You remember at the very end of the ministry of Christ, some Greeks came to Christ. Actually, they asked for an interview. They wanted Jesus to go preach the gospel in Greece and to do his works of healing in Greece. And Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, It's not time to go to Greece to preach the gospel. And then he says, If a grain of wheat does not fall into the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it falls into the earth and dies, it will bear much fruit. Now my role is to die. And if I die, there'll be a lot of fruit in Greece in due time. It was really a temptation of Satan for Jesus to delay his mission of dying on the cross and go preach the gospel in Greece according to what Ellen White has to say to us. Even at the very, very end of the life of Christ, When Judas betrayed Christ, we're told in the Bible that the devil got into Judas. Do you really think that that it was the intention of Judas to deliver Jesus so that they would kill Jesus? That was not the intention of Judas. And we know that because when it didn't happen, you know, if, if Jesus was killed and Judas, that was the intention of Judas, Judas would have said, wonderful! But when he saw that, his purpose was that Jesus would be put between a rock and a hard place and he would deliver himself and proclaim his authority over his oppressors. But when it didn't happen, the Bible says that Judas threw the money. Money meant nothing to him anymore. And the Bible says that he went and he committed suicide. The devil used Judas to try to detract Jesus from going to the cross and to assert his authority to take over the throne. So the devil constantly tried to get Jesus to follow a different path than the path that God had established, which was to live a perfect life and to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. The devil could not kill him, the devil could not infect him, and the devil could not detract him. But there was a fourth method, and this was the worst of all. The devil tried to discourage Jesus to such a point they would pick up and leave the human race to be lost. Did you know that Jesus at any moment could have decided to leave and go back to heaven and allow the human race to perish? He could have done that. In fact, as we see the final events of the life of Christ from the time that he's in Gethsemane till the time that he dies on the cross, the devil is doing everything in his power to discourage Jesus, from fulfilling his mission, this is the last straw. It's the last resort. The devil says, I was not able to kill him. I was not able to infect him. I was not able to detract him. Now I'm going to make him so miserable that he will say, what's the use of doing this? And he'll pick up. And he'll go back to heaven. And he'll allow the human race to perish. Notice Matthew 26, verse 38. Matthew 26, verse 38. Verse 38. Here Jesus begins his sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, it's, and Jesus states this, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He longs for the support of his disciples and the prayers of his disciples. He says, Stay here and watch. I'm sorrowful. I'm filled with pain. And then Jesus begins to utter that prayer to his father. Matthew 26 verse 39. Three times he utters this prayer. It says in verse 39, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, again a second time he went away and prayed saying, Oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in verse 44 we're told, so he left them, went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. He's praying, Father, if this cup can pass from me. Let me ask you, what did the cup contain? And who gave him the cup? We're told in John 18, verse 11, that his father gave him the cup. And do you know what the cup had? The cup had the wrath of God that each one of us should drink because of our sins. You know, the word cup that's used is the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 16, where it speaks about pouring out the bowls of God's wrath. Unfortunately, it translates bowls, but really it's the same word. Cup. In other words, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath without mixture of mercy. Do you know that Jesus would have died before one finger was laid on him? Do you know when he was praying, according to the spirit of prophecy, he fell to the ground as dying? Nobody had touched him yet. In fact, if an angel had not come to strengthen him, he would have died in the garden. Not of his wounds, but because of the weight of sin that was crushing his soul. And what was the devil telling him? The devil was telling him, Yeah, your disciples care a lot about you, they're all sleeping. One of your disciples betrayed you. Another one of your disciples denied you. The rest of the disciples ran away. You're not even going to save them. You actually think that what you're doing is going to produce any positive results? The people you came to save, they're all screaming, crucify him. If you stay and you follow through with this, They're going to be lost and you're going to be lost and you will never see your father's face ever again. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 we have a description of the agony of Christ. This is speaking about his agony in Gethsemane only it's described in the book of Hebrews. It says here, Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up, listen to this, prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. See, it amplifies the idea of what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. Notice, prayers, supplications, vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. In fact, we're told in Luke 22 verse 44 that his agony was so great that he sweated as great drops of blood how much anguish must you have to sweat blood instead of sweat now what was going on desire of ages 753 listen to this quotation desire of ages 753 satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of jesus the savior could not see through the portals of the tomb hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Listen carefully. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the son of God in fact in that same chapter Gethsemane Ellen White says that the devil tortured Jesus with his temptations and said if you go through this with with this the separation between you and your father will be eternal you will never see your father's face ever again let me ask you Did the devil while Jesus was on the cross attempt to entice him to come down from the cross and not die? See what the devil is up to here? here, Even to the last moment, he says, No, you don't have to die. Just come down and beat up on the people who are doing this to you. Exert your authority and your power. But if Jesus had done that, he would have sinned. Because that would have been selfishness. By the way, that's in Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43. Or they said, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. You know, all during his ministry, Jesus felt the presence of his Father. In fact, in John 8, 29, we find these words of Jesus. He says, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. It's not what he said on the cross, by the way. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please Him. So Jesus says during His ministry, The Father has not left me alone. He was always conscious of the presence of His Father. And yet now in Gethsemane, He's praying to His Father, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. And as He's hanging on the cross, He cries out to the one that He had always felt with Him, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? It was because of sin. You know how sin is overcome? Sin is not overcome by looking at the law. Sin is overcome by looking at what it cost Jesus. You see, when I I visit Jesus, Ellen White says an hour a day, when I visit Jesus in Gethsemane, and I hear, I see him sweating drops of blood, crying out with vehement cries. Would have died in the garden if it hadn't been for the angel that strengthened, begging his father to take away the cup. And I asked Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross and saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I asked Jesus, Why did this happen to you? And Jesus says, Because of the movies that you go watch. Hmm. Makes it a little personal, doesn't it? Because of the music that you listen to. Did Jesus bear those things? You better believe he did. It was our sins that led Jesus to hang on the cross. And when I see what sin did to Jesus, if I love Jesus, I will not want anything more to do with sin. Because it hurts Jesus. So sin is overcome by, by spending time at the foot of the cross. It's not by comparing my life with the lost saying Now how did I measure up today? No. It's seen what sin cost Jesus. And so Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Bible tells us that his last words on the cross were, It is finished! Those words, as we're going to notice in our seminar tomorrow, were spoken to his Father. He's saying to his Father, Father, I finished the work that you sent me to do. You know, there's this debate in the Adventist church whether, whether the atonement was finished at the cross. The fact is that salvation was guaranteed at the cross. What happens after the cross is simply the individual personal application of the benefits of the life and death of Christ to individuals who come repentant and confessing to Jesus. In other words, what happens after the cross is an application of the benefits of Christ's life and Christ's death to individuals who meet the conditions. But as far as the provision is concerned, when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying to his father, I have finished the work that will make it possible for my people to come back home. And you know that those were not the last words. The last words were, Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit. Do you know what Jesus was really saying? You know, we we think of the spirit as being just the breath, the breath of life. And the spirit is certainly the breath of life, but it's more than the breath of life. You see, in heaven, God keeps a record, an exact record of who who we were in life. Inside and out. Our thoughts, our feelings, our words, our emotions, our motives, everything. God has another Steve Bore, not in person, but perhaps in electronic form, saved up there. Now, when I say electronic, I'm a little bit of speculation. But God does have, does have a record that He keeps up there. Scripture makes that clear. So if I should die... When Jesus resurrects me, is he only going to give me the breath of life back? Or is he going to give me me back? He's going to give me the breath of life along with my life record. Minus all of the sins that have been erased in the cleansing of the sanctuary. Are you following me? In other words... God is, Jesus is going to return to me when I resurrect who I was during my life. Along with the breath, he's going to return to me the record of my life. That's the spirit. It's a package deal. It's the breath with the self-identity of the individual. Ellen White says, the spirit of man is his character. She has a clear quotation on that point. So when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, Jesus is saying, Father, preserve my self-identity. Because you have promised that if I was faithful, on the third day, you will call me out. And so Jesus dies in hope. See, it sounds like you've forsaken me. It is finished. But he says, ah, but in your hands I commend my spirit. So he dies in hope. Very early, the first day of the week, Two angels came down from heaven. One of the angels removed the stone. And by the way, the soldiers all dropped like they were dead. You think the devil wanted to keep Jesus in the tomb. Come on. He thinks a little pebble could keep Jesus in the tomb. Puts a Roman guard, stations his angel, says, Okay, he died. He lived and died. But if I can keep him in there dead... Still, there's no salvation. But very early, two angels descend. One rolls away the stone. The other one stands before the tomb. And with a commanding voice that shook the earth says, O thou Son of God, thy Father calls thee. Suddenly, out of the tomb comes Jesus, minus all of the wrappings that he had, because he had carefully folded those. And he comes out. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus came out, the devil knew that he was doomed. And that now there was perfect provision in the life of Christ in place of our sinful life. And the death of Jesus offered in place of our death. The devil knew that anyone who would come to Jesus to claim the benefits of his life and death, would eventually be saved, and Satan knew that his kingdom was lost. So Jesus was successful in his mission. Now one final point. When Jesus resurrected, he did not resurrect by himself. Let's read our last passage. Don't miss the next exciting episode tomorrow. this is only going to get better tomorrow we're going to talk about the return of the war hero to heaven remember he said 33 years I'll be back tomorrow we're going to talk about when he went back the Bible has a lot to say about that believe it or not about what happened when Jesus arrived Matthew 27 51 to 53 then behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And now notice, And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Two reasons why this group resurrected. Number one, so that they could witness, give witness to Christ's resurrection. And secondly, because they were going to be first fruits from the dead, that Jesus would present before his father, Upon his ascension, 40 days after his resurrection. Now, I'd like to end by mentioning that the traditional view that has been held is that the 24 elders are those who resurrected with Christ and were taken to heaven as the first fruits from among the dead. We're going to notice in our study tomorrow that that tradition is just that a tradition. It does not square with what is taught in the Bible or in the spirit of prophecy. There's something much more profound here that takes place upon the ascension of Christ. And tomorrow we will study, Lord willing, about the ascension of Christ, the presentation of the first fruits, and the role that is played by the 24 elders, the four living creatures, as well as the seven spirits who are before the throne. So, I hope to see all of you tomorrow, Lord willing. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for being willing to send your precious son to this world. To suffer, to agonize, to be wounded, and to have those wounds upon his body, those scars upon his body, not for a season, but forever is a reminder of your great love for us. Thank you for being willing to send Jesus to live the life that we should live and to die the death that we should suffer. Help us, Lord, each day to appreciate more and more what Jesus has done. Help us to come to the foot of the cross repentant and confessing our sins, knowing that when we do so, there is full and complete forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for having been with us in our study. And we ask that you will continue to be with all of the activities of this GYC. What a wonderful occasion it is to get together. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.